All right, so here we go. So we are continuing in their footsteps, in the footsteps of our patriarchs and matriarchs. Tonight, we're going to get both patriarch and matriarch in. So the last few weeks, we've gone a little deep into the, into the specific characteristics that we associate with the patriarchs, that we associate uh, kindness with Avraham, we associate restraint or fear of God with Yitzchak, justice with Yitzchak. That's what we spent a lot of time the last two weeks on. And then the third would be Yaakov, Jacob, who we associate with either truth, MS, or Torah. And that is a topic that I do want to get to eventually. But I decided for this week, I want to move away from that whole theme a little bit, just to give us a, a break. It gets, that is a little deep and heavy. It's gonna go, we'll go a little bit lighter tonight, um, but with some really important lessons, practical from the, from the lives of the patriarchs and matriarchs. But we'll sign, kind of gonna continue somewhat where we left off in the story. So last week we talked about the blessings that Isaac, that Yitzchak gives, Mainly, we talked about the blessing that he gave to, to Yaakov, to Jacob. Um, then, of course, Esav comes back, and he's all upset that Jacob has stolen his blessing, and <laughs> he wants to kill Jacob. He wants to kill Yaakov. Yaakov flees to, on the, really on the instruction of his mother, Rivka, Rebecca, he runs away to Haran where his uh, uncle Lavan lives. And on the way, there's a whole story, which again, I want to maybe come back to, but we're not going to do it this week, where he, where he lies down and he has a dream of a ladder with angels. Very important uh, episode. But following that episode, he now arrives on the outskirts of Haran, where his uncle Lavan lives. And that's where he's going to meet his, his wife, Rachel, Rachel on the outskirts of, of Haran, and then we'll have a, we'll, and we'll talk about it a little bit, we'll have the episode where he, where Lavan, his uncle, switches his wife, that he, he tricks him, and, and Yaakov marries Leah first, and then only afterwards does he marry Rachel, so uh, that's what we'll be exploring a little bit tonight. So let's, uh, um, actually, let me just drop the source sheet into the chat in case anybody doesn't have it. Um, just give me one second. Okay, so now you can find it in the chat if you don't have it. And we're going to start from source number one, and we'll just read the verses that talk about Yaakov's arrival outside of Haran. So it says that he traveled, and then it says, and he looked, and behold, a well in the field. So that he comes to a well, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, because from that well they would water the flocks, and a huge rock was upon the mouth of the well. So there is a large rock over the well. Now you might wonder, what on earth is there is a large rock doing on a well? So actually, this was apparently the practice to ensure that nobody would take water unless everybody was there. They'd have a rock that they would need everybody there or a lot of people in order to remove the rock. 
And that way nobody could take unless all the shepherds were there. And then after they all arrived, they would remove the rock, everybody would get their turn, and then they put the rock back all together. And that way that would ensure that uh, people didn't take without uh, everyone else there. So verse three, it says, and all the flocks would gather there Oh, and they would roll the rock off the mouth of the well and water the sheep, and then they would return the rock onto the mouth of the well to its place. And Jacob said to them, so he arrives at this well, he sees all the shepherds waiting there, and he says, my brothers, where are you from? And they said, we are from Haran, which is what he wants to hear, because that's where he needs to go. So he knows he's in the right place. So he says, and he said to them, do you know Lavan, the son of Nachor? And they said, we know him. And he said to them, are things going well with him? And they said, things are going well. And behold, his daughter, Rachel, Rachel, is coming with the sheep. So just then along comes his daughter, Rachel. So then Yaakov kind of <coughs> seems to just go off on a tangent. And he said, the day is yet long. It is not the time to take in the livestock. Water the sheep and go pasture. So he starts to instruct them, rebuke them. And he says, you know, there's still lots of time in the day. You should be watering your flock. So Rashi comments there, quoting the Midrash, that he was giving them muster. He was rebuking them. Since he saw them lying down, he thought that they wished to gather the livestock to return home and that they would no longer graze. So he said to them, the day is yet long i.e. if you have been hired for the day, you have not completed the day's work. And if the animals are yours, it is nevertheless not the time to take in the live livestock. So basically he tells them, listen, are you guys hired workers? Well, if you're hired workers, then you're probably hired for the whole day. So what are you doing lying around doing nothing? You should keep working. You should water the, water the sheep. And, if, <laughs> and if, they're, if you're not hired, if these animals belong to you, well, anyways, there's, uh, there's more time. So that's the Rashi is coming to explain the different things that he said. He says, the day is yet long. There's, there's more time in the day. And therefore, if you're hired to work for the day, you got to finish your day's work. And then he said, it's also not time. It's anyways, not time to go home. So why, are, why would you be relaxing as if you're preparing to go home? Okay. That's what he had to say to them. So what do they respond? Verse eight, and they said, we cannot do that until all the flocks are gathered together and they will roll the rock off the mouth of the well and we shall then water the sheep. He said, you know why? They explain, you know why we're here? Because there's a rock on the well and we need everybody here in order to get the rock off. And so we're waiting for all the sheep, all the uh, shepherds to gather. Now, while he was still talking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep for she was a shepherdess. That's a great word, shepherdess. And it came to pass that when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob drew near and rolled the rock off the mouth of the well, and he watered the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother. So, so Yaakov is inspired to, you know, he sees Rachel, he's inspired to help, and suddenly, all of a sudden, a task that is usually performed by many people, Yaakov is able to do, to do himself. Now, Rabbi, Shmuel, uh, Rabbi Chaim Shmulevitz, he, he, he explains that don't think that this was a miracle. Maybe some will understand it that way. That all of a sudden he got super strength like Samson and was able to, to roll the rock off. That's not what happened. 
but rather a person has within them much great potential to accomplish things that we don't even know that we could accomplish. Um, maybe we could call it adrenaline, right? There's stories of some, you know, mothers lifting up cars off of babies, you know, these things really do happen. So where does that strength come from? It comes from somewhere within a person that they're, they could get an adrenaline rush. Now imagine if you can channel that, if somebody could channel that when necessary. So, so Yaakov here, he sees, you know, he wants, he's so inspired to help all of a sudden he has the strength to do so. Okay, that's a side point, but I want to really ask what is going on with, with Yaakov and these shepherds? You know, he shows up out of nowhere and uh, they don't know him. He doesn't know them. And all of a sudden he starts telling them what to do. Right. You, you know, imagine, you know, you're just you're at work and uh, you're taking a coffee break or something and or not or you maybe even not a coffee break. You're, you're waiting for you're waiting for the you're, you know, for the photocopier or something. So you're standing there. So uh, so someone who just walks up, no, doesn't belong there. And he or she says, what are you doing standing around? You, you know, you're being paid to work here. So what's your reaction? I would think that most people's reaction would be, well, who are you? <laughs> like, who do you think you are? But that's not how they react. They start explaining, oh, uh, they say, that's a good question, excellent question. But here's the explanation, you know, the reason why is because of the rock and they don't even, they don't even flinch. Why? You know, is it just that they are so righteous that they, you know, they're not insulted, they're not, they're not offended by, by, by him? What's going on here? So the Panavicharov of Yosef Kahanaman explained that the reason why they reacted in this way was because of one word or two words, we could say. In Hebrew, it's one word. In English, it's translating to two words. And that is, if you go back to verse four, so Yaakov, when he first encounters them, he says, my brothers, where are you from? And he greets them in such a loving way, calls them his brothers. Where are you from? You know, strikes up a little conversation with them, connects with them a little bit. Then, he's, then, he, then he says, you know, then he, then he hits them on the head with his, uh, with his rebuke, with his admonishment. But what you see from this is that, you know, how how a few kind words can go such a long way in when we first encounter someone or even more so when we regularly encounter someone we have to build up credit with them we have to say nice things most of the time and then if we have something critical to say then it's much more likely to be received and accepted and that's what that's what may have been happening over here he greeted them in such a friendly way, in such a loving way, they could see that this was a person who just, he had, he had a love for people. They could see that in him. And therefore, when he then said something critical to them, so they could understand that it wasn't, it wasn't out of, you know, spite, or this is just like a, you know, a person who sees something and starts criticizing. No, they understood that he was out, he was looking for their, their best interest. He was, he was looking out for them. And that it was coming from a place of love. And that's why they didn't get upset with him. Who do you think you are? Rather, they, they saw, you know, this is, this is someone who cares, who cares about us. And that's why he's asking. So we'll give him, you know, the, the, we'll explain. We'll explain it to him without getting offended. 
That's how the Panavicharov explained this. Now, really working with a similar idea, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky um, makes a very interesting point over here. And it's, it's, a, it's an important lesson in general about how, how it works when we, we want to say something maybe to, you know, we use the word often rebuke or admonish or really clarify for someone how they can improve their behavior. So, so really there's a mitzvah, there's a commandment in the Torah to rebuke. Rebuke is a loose translation. In the Hebrew, it's hocheach tochiach et amisecha. You should, you shall surely, again, I'll translate for now as rebuke your friend. Now, the reason why I say I'm going to translate it for now is that I, I think another way to translate it, and really this is like the, the, the real meaning of this root, hochiach is to clarify. We're really clarifying things. We're help, letting somebody see things in the proper light, helping them see things in the proper light. So it's a very tricky mitzvah. Um, we're not to just, you know, we're not to do it if it if it's, has no potential of working, especially if it's going to just turn the person off. But uh, if we have the opportunity to help show someone the proper way, then we have a mitzvah to do it. And if we don't, then actually we are responsible for their behavior. Because if we have an opportunity to help somebody clarify, to clarify for someone what's the proper conduct, then we have to take advantage. It's a mitzvah in the Torah. So the Talmud has an interesting comment. The Talmud says, at source number two, it says, until where does the obligation of rebuke extend? Meaning you've, you've helped, tried to help clarify something for someone and they are not um, receptive. So at what point do you, do you give up? So the Talmud brings three opinions. Rav says, until his rebu rebuke is met by hitting, i.e. until the person being rebuked hits the person rebuking him. You know how you know you have to stop when he, hit, when he or she hits you? That's, that's, that's when you know you've rebuked enough. Shmuel says, until his rebuke is met by cursing. You don't have to wait till they hit you, but you have to wait, you have to keep trying until they curse you. And Rabbi Yochanan says, until his rebuke is met by reprimand. So not quite cursing you out, but, but, but maybe, you know, expressing their, their, dis, uh, their, their, their dissatisfaction in the way that, that, that you are treating them. So that's, that's what the Talmud says. But again, it helps us appreciate that this is a real thing, you know, that, that we are supposed to try to help clarify things. If somebody is not receptive, so then we, we, we don't have to continue. So, so I want to look for a second how Maimonides, the Rambam, how he codifies this, this halacha, this law of rebuke. So it says in the Rambam and the laws of Deus, chapter six. <laughs> so he writes, this is source three, it is a mitzvah, it is a commandment for a person who sees that his fellow Jew has sinned or is following an improper path to attempt to correct his behavior and to inform him that he is causing himself a loss by his evil deeds, as it states in Leviticus, in Vayikra, you shall surely admonish your colleague. That's the verse I just mentioned. You shall surely rebuke or admonish or help clarify. So already, what does my Maimonides mean? He says to inform him or her that they are causing themselves a loss by their evil deeds, meaning we want to, we, we have an interest in 
in helping the person realize that there's a, there's a cost to their behavior. They are losing out on a, a merit. They are losing out um, on a connection with God by behaving in this manner. Then he continues and he says, a person who rebukes a colleague, whether because of a wrong committed against him or because a matter between his colleague and God should rebuke him privately. So basically it doesn't matter if it's a, what we call being Adam Lachavero, it's a the, the person has sinned between themselves and, and a friend and a human. They've 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 wronged another another person, or if their sin is related to their relationship with God, they are acting against God's will. So either way, one should rebuke them, but one should rebuke them privately. It has to be done in private. We 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 do not do it in front of other people. And now he tells us how to do it. Says the Rambam, says my mongies, how do we? rebuke someone? How do we clarify something for someone? He should speak to him patiently and gently, informing him that he is only making these statements for his colleague's own welfare to allow him to merit the life of the world to come. You, you, you explain to them that I'm concerned for you. I'm concerned for your spiritual welfare. I'm concerned for your share in the world to come, for your olam haba, and that's why I, I, this is important to me, and I want it to be important to you. That's why I am sharing this with you. That's how we have to do it, gently, patiently, and informing them that it's really, it's really for them. I'm only doing this for, for your own good. Then it says, if he accepts the rebuke, it is good. If not, he should rebuke him a second time and third time, not just back to back. That's not going to help, but you know, you wait for another next opportunity. You wait for another, another moment that might be the, the right moment. You build up a little more credit maybe, you know, with them. And then you try again. You don't just, again, it, it, it can't just be flippant. It's, it's not going to work that way. It has to be, there, you have to make deposits first. You have to have a relationship. You have to, you have to be able to show that it's that, that this is out of love and in your best interest in the other person's best interest. Indeed, he says, one is obligated to rebuke a colleague who does wrong until the lagger strikes him and tells him, I will not listen. So Maimonides actually codifies the first opinion that you have to keep trying until the person strikes you. So that's, that's quite a bit. Um, and, and, and says, I'm not going to listen. So, uh, so fine. So that's, the, that's how, how, how Maimonides rules on this. So Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky explains sort of what's the what's the foundational idea over here and he says that you know we, there's a mitzvah right there's a mitzvah here to rebuke so just because the person starts to reprimand me back or even curse me so why should that stop me why should i stop after that i mean the, the talmud brought three opinions one was until he hits you one was until he curses you almost until he reprimands you. But I have a mitzvah. I, I, I have an obligation to, to do this. So why should I stop if they are reprimanding me, if they don't like it, you know, if they don't appreciate it? So maybe it's because, maybe it's because it's obviously not working, right? But maybe I should come back another time and try again. All these times, we're not saying to try twice in a row. We mean come back. Uh, why is it that at that point, according to those opinions, at least we stop, we don't try again. So Rabbi Kamenetsky says that the idea is 
that um, the way, again, the way the, way the Rambam, the way Maimagis presents it here is that you have to, the person has to know that you're doing this for them, that you're doing it out of love. The moment that, that they start to lash out back at you, then it's kind of all is lost on that front. There's no, they're clearly not, not seeing that. They're clearly not seeing that you're doing this for them. Otherwise they wouldn't be upset that way. And, uh, and therefore um, he says, it's so important that there be, that there be love on both sides, really, when this is, when, when such a, such, such a thing is attempted. When, uh, when in order to attempt something, you really, in order to attempt rebuke, in order to attempt admonishment or clarification, you really need to have that there's love on both sides. And, uh, and once the person, you know, responds in such a way, so then it's no longer going to be rebuking in the, in the proper setting, in the proper context. So he says that, uh, that that's, that, that's what Yaakov was doing here. Ya Yaakov comes and he sees, you know, he sees right away these guys sitting around and he wants to tell them, he wants to advise them of how, how they're to be, you know, how to, they're to behave. If you're working, you know, you guys should, should, should finish the day's work. Why are you taking off? So that's again, that's why he opens with my brothers. He shows them love. He makes deposits. And then he's able to, after that, now that they understand that he, that he has their best interests at, at heart, then he's able to try to strike up a conversation about why they're acting in the way that they are. Okay, so that's, uh, that's Yaakov at the well and his encounter with the shepherds. By the way, I should also mention that one of the things that we brought up in a previous class is the idea of that the events of the forefathers are prophetic um, and symbolic of later and future, um, future experiences of the future generations. So this, this, this is no exception. There's many events that the commentaries bring out exactly what, or I shouldn't say exactly, but but they uh, they suggest and they 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 surmise what what the this episode represents on a more grand scale. So here also there's there's something being represented here. I don't it, you know it's it's again something that even for me like it's I don't fully grasp it. I shouldn't say even for me. I, I don't fully grasp, but 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 the Malbim, for example, he says that sort of the well represents spirituality and God, and the the rock represents um, the the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, which covers it, and and we we need to come together. We need all the shepherds to come together to remove the the rock, but even that doesn't necessarily work. But we need Yaakov, we need Jacob to come and remove the rock. So just to, to know that there's also a lot of symbolism in these, in these events as well. Okay, I want to move on and talk a little bit about Yaakov's wonderful wife, Rachel. Rachel. So what happens next? So Yaakov, he meets Rachel here at the well, and he, 
he falls in love with her. He wants to marry her. And he goes back to, he's invited back to Lavan's house. And Lavan says, you can marry her. You just have to work for me for seven years. So Yaakov works for her, for him for seven years. And, and that's where let's pick up um, on source number four. Let's see what happens. So it says, chapter 29, verse 18, and Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will work for you seven years. He's talking to Lavan for Rachel, your younger daughter. And Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to another man. Stay with me. It's quite the compliment, right? <laughs> ah, you're better you than anyone else. Okay. So Yaakov worked for Rachel seven years, but they appeared to him like a few days because of his love for her. And Yaakov said to Laban, give me my wife for my days are completed that I may come to her. So the, the, the seven years are done. He says, it's time. So Laban gathered all the people of the place and he made a feast. He plans the wedding. He plans a feast. And verse 23, the top of side two, and it came to pass in the evening that Laban took his daughter Leah and he brought her to him and he came to her. Um, so he's, he's, he's supposed to marry Rachel. Laban calls his older daughter Leah instead. Okay, verse 24, we could skip that. Verse 25, and it came to pass in the morning, and behold, she was Leah. So Yaakov doesn't realize somehow that, that the, the woman he was with, the woman he had just married, was Rachel. It was not Rachel, was Leah. And it's not until the morning he wakes up and he realizes it's light now, and he sees that it is in fact Leah. So he said to Lavan, what is this that you have done to me? Did I not work with you for Rachel? Why have you deceived me? So Rashi explains to us a little bit of how this happened. And he quotes from the Talmud and Megillah. We're going to read through the whole piece in a moment, but let's just see how Rashi quotes it. So it says, it came to pass in the morning and behold, she was Leah. So Rashi explains, but at night she was not Leah, meaning he was, it wasn't supposed to be Leah. He thought it, or I should say, he thought that it wasn't Leah at night because Jacob had given signs to Rachel, to Rachel. But when she saw that they were bringing Leah, she, Rachel, said, now my sister will be put to shame. So she regularly transmitted those signs to her. So, so basically, they anticipated this, is what, is what Rashi is telling us. Yaakov and Rachel had anticipated that Lavan would try to pull a switcheroo. And they planned for it. So Yaakov said, I'm going to give you certain signs. And if you and, and you'll tell me those signs. And that way I'll know that it's you and not Leah. And what happened was when they planned the switch, Rachel felt very bad for her sister Leah. She would be embarrassed. And therefore she told her the signs. And that's how Yaakov didn't realize that it was Leah and not Rachel. Now there's a lot of questions we can ask about that. Let's hold them for now. Um, until we see the, the whole piece together in the, in the Talmud in a few lines. Um, okay, so what happens, verse 26. So Lavan said, it is not done so in our place to give the younger one before the firstborn. You know why I switched? Because that's how we do it here. The older daughter gets married first. Complete the wedding week of this one, and we will give you this one too for the work that you will render me for another seven years. In a week's time, I'll let you marry Rachel on condition that you work another seven years for me. And Jacob did so. He completed the week of this one and he gave his daughter Rachel to him as a wife. 
Okay, I think that's good for now. So that's so that's the story of the of the switch that Lavan pulls. Yaakov is supposed to marry Rachel, Rachel, and instead they switch Leah, and he doesn't realize until the morning, and then he's allowed to marry Rachel a week later. Says the Talmud in source five. So the verse states in Eov in Job, it says he withdraws Naga's eyes from the righteous. So I'll just skip to the, after that, it says, this teaches that in reward for the modesty shown by Rachel, she merited that Saul, Shaul, the first king of Israel, who was also modest, should descend from her. And in reward for the modesty shown by Shaul, he merited that Esther should descend from him. So the verse says that God does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, meaning he rewards a person for their righteousness. And so as a reward for, for the modesty of Rachel, of Rachel, she merited to have Shaul come from her, who also had this trait of modesty. And King Shaul merited to have Esther descend from him, who also had the trait of modesty. Okay, the Gemara explains, what was the modesty shown by Rachel? Where do we see this trait of tznut, of modesty, tznus? So it says that uh, basically... I, I didn't include every every piece, every every line here, but Yaakov meets Rachel, and uh, and Rachel warns him, and she says, "You should know my father is a trickster, and he's going to try to trick you. Lavan is going to try to trick you." So, so Yaakov said, "Don't worry, I can handle him." He said, "I am his brother in trickery. I'm his brother in trickery." Actually, if you look. Um, Okay, so that's that was his response. So says the Talmud, Jacob then said to her, so right there in the middle after the ellipsis, what is the deception that he will plan to carry out? And I should be prepared for what is what's he what's it? What do you think? What's he gonna do? So Rachel said to him, I have a sister who is older than I, and he will not marry me before her, marry me off before her, and will try to give you her in my place. So Jacob gave her certain distinguishing signs that she should use to indicate to him that she was actually Rachel and not her sister. So that was the plan. You know it's Rachel because of the signs. When the wedding night arrived and Laban planned to switch the sisters, Rachel said to herself, now my sister will be embarrassed. And for Yaakov, for, for, for Jacob will ask for the signs and she will not know them. So she gave them to her. And this is as it is written. And it came to pass that in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Does this imply by inference that until now she was not Leah? Right? And behold, in the morning she was Leah, but and, and at night it wasn't Leah. Rather, due to the distinguishing signs that Rachel had given to Leah, he, done, he did not know until now that she was Leah. It was Leah the whole time, but he didn't realize that in, in, until the morning. And behold, in the morning it was Leah. It seems that he didn't realize that. How could he have not realized? Because she had the signs of Rachel. Therefore, Rachel merited that Shaul should descend from her. Fine. So, so, so therefore, because of what she did, she merited that Shaul would descend. Now, what did she do? She gave the signs to her sister Leah. And what is that trait? How would we describe such an action? So I'll tell you how I would not describe it because it just doesn't seem to have anything to do with it. I would not describe it as modest, modesty. 
right? I would say it's, it's caring, it's sensitivity, kindness. But what does this have to do with modesty, right? The, the, the Talmud says, because of the modesty of Rachel, she merited to have Sha'ol descend from her. And what was the modesty? Here you go. Here's what happened. What happened was her sister was going to be embarrassed and she gave her the signs. So we're going to, if anybody wants to offer an answer, you're welcome to. Um, otherwise, I'll bring, offer two explanations for what, is, what, what this has to do with modesty. Okay, David, you have something? She went beyond herself to look at the modesty of her sister because her sister would be exposed. Okay. So, uh, so but it was the modesty of her sister. She was the modesty her. of her sister. You mean like because she would be embarrassed? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Rabbi? Um, yeah. Maybe because she didn't uh, tell the detail to her sister. What do you mean? She, um, she didn't explain that, in fact, she was the one who was supposed to be married. And uh, they, there was a sign. This is the sign. She gave the information to her sister without revealing that I'm doing that out of. But she, I mean, she, she took some detail away from her sister. Doing okay. That that's very good. So that, that's very similar to what to, to the second approach that we'll offer. So excellent. Okay. So the first approach is introduced by the by the Beni Shai. And uh, and he explains as follows. He says, he asks this question straight up. He says, What where's the where's the sneus? Where's the modesty in this? What does this have anything to do with modesty? If anything, I would choose a word like merciful or sensitive or something like that. But to describe this as sneus, modest, that seems to be unrelated. So, so he suggests that actually the only way that this was could possibly have worked out, this little switch, is only if Rachel was in fact very modest during those seven years. He says, you know, normally people, um, you know, certainly an engaged couple like, uh, like Yaakov and Rachel were, they were, you know, they were destined to, they were, they were, they were supposed to be married. Yaakov was working for, to marry Rachel. So they would spend a lot of time together, right? Which uh, could be a good thing, but could also be a bad thing because they're not yet married and, uh, and may not be the best idea to, to spend too much time. So, uh, so therefore, um, so therefore, Rachel, in her great modesty, remained out of sight as much as she could. And because of that, Yaakov didn't actually know her so well. After, you know, seven years had gone by where he hadn't seen her so much. She, she was waiting. She was waiting for the seven years to be up. And then she would get to know him better again. But during that time, she, you know, if he would enter a room, she would leave. She, she avoided Yaakov for those seven years. He says, that's the only way that, that, this, that this could have worked out. Because if Yaakov really knew her very well, 
and was seeing her regularly, then he would have known right away that it's not Rachel with him. It's Leah. It's someone else. But because, because he didn't see so much of her, so then he, you know, seven years, a lot can change over seven years. So he, 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 he didn't see so much of her. That's how they, they were able to pull this off. So, so, so you see, though, that the, the tremendous modesty, the tremendous sneus of Rachel from that. Now, that's not for everyone, but uh, that's, uh, that's what he suggests was the level of, that Rachel was on, was that during that time, um, she, she kind of remained out of sight of Yaakov. That way, he didn't, he didn't know her so well by the time the seven years were up. He, he wouldn't have been able to identify her necessarily so well. That's how the how Glavon was actually able to pull this off, but we ultimately see this uh, this attribute in Rachel, which is her tznius. That's one answer. Okay, second answer though is what I want to build, which is very similar to what Chaya Miriam was saying. But I want to introduce it with another difficult question. If you look in source number six, so this is just one chapter later, so. Leah has now had a few children. And it says in chapter 30, uh, excuse me, it's source number six on the source sheet, chapter 30, verse 14. Reuven went in the days of the wheat harvest and he found Dudaim in the field and brought them to Leah, his mother. And Rachel said to Leah, now give me some of your son's Dudaim. Dudaim are, they're some kind of flower or something. So, so Ruvain goes and picks flowers for his mother, Leah. He brings them to Leah. And Rachel says, you know, can I have some? Those are so beautiful. Can I have some of those dudaim that your, that your, uh, that your son got for you? It could be, I think, according to some, they, were, um, they, were, they were, would be helpful in, in, in maybe they have medicinal qualities that would help Rachel maybe to have a child. So there's different understandings, but whatever it was, she wanted some of those dudaim. So Leah responds, verse 15, and she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken my husband that you wish also to take my son's dudaim? So Rachel said, therefore he shall sleep with you tonight as payment for your son's dudaim. She said, okay, fine. I'll take the dudaim. You can be with Yaakov tonight, even though it was her turn, I guess. Now, this is just, you know, it, it's shocking, this, this, uh, this, this exchange. What is wrong with Leah? You know, the one word that comes to mind is, is what chutzpah that she has, right? Rachel has done so much for her. And she now says, she turns around and she says, is it a small matter you have taken my husband? That you wish also to take my, my dudai. You, you, she says to Rachel, you took my husband? Rachel should be like, excuse me? You took my husband and I helped you. Do you have no appreciation? Do you have no gratitude for that? Could there be you know, a, most, a more rude and ridiculous claim that Leah could come back with? And by the way, Rachel doesn't say that even. She doesn't say back, excuse me, you, know, you took my husband. She just says, okay, you know, let's make a deal. Let's, uh, you, can, you can be with him. I'll take the dudaim. I guess she really wanted those dudaim. 
So it's really hard to understand this exchange. You know, you know, Leia, she's a matriarch. She's not like, a, you know, some wicked lady or, you know, that, that has no respect for anything. She's, she was very righteous. So how can we understand this exchange? So, so along the lines of what uh, Chaya Miriam was saying before, um, Rabbi Shalom Shwadran suggests the following great uh, and novel interpretation of all these events. He wants to suggest that maybe Leah had no idea what Rachel had done for her. Maybe Leah didn't realize that Rachel had actually given her Simanim, signs, the signs that she needed to marry Yaakov. How could that be? So he says, if you look in the commentary, the Das Zikanim, written by the medieval commentaries, the Tosvos. So they comment, look at source number seven, and it was in the morning. So that was that verse where, you know, Yaakov wakes up and it's Leah. So he only realized it was Leah in the morning. So they comment because all night she was pretending to be Rachel. How? How did she pretend to be Rachel? Because of the signs that she had given her. What were the signs? I have no idea what the signs were. But actually, the Das Zikanim tells us what the signs were. The signs were Nida, Chala, and candlelighting. The three mitzvos that are most associated with a woman. Marital purity, the mitzvah of Chala, of separating a portion of the dough, and the mitzvah of lighting the candles for Shabbos. Chala, Ner Shabbos, and sorry, Chala, Nida, and Hadlakas Neros. Chala, and that, that's an acronym, Chana, by the way. Chana, so is Ches, Chala, Nun, Nida, and Hey, Hadlakas Neros. Nida is marital purity. So these are the, the main mitzvahs of a, you know, that are associated with a woman more so than with a man. And, and says the Dastakanim that that was, that was, those were the Simon. That's what, that was what, what Yaakov was going to ask about. So explains Rabbi Shwadran, maybe, perhaps, when Rachel told her about this, she never told her, by the way, this is a secret code between me and Yaakov. He's going to ask you this to verify that it's me. So if you want to pretend to be me, you have to tell him this. Rachel just, she realized that her sister was going to be embarrassed. So she taught this to her. She said, by the way, I think if you're going to get married, you know, you should know these three very important mitzvot, these three very important commandments that uh, every Jewish woman should know. And that's all she told her. And when Yaakov asked Leah for the signs, he, she didn't know that he, she didn't even know he was asking for signs. He thought she was just asking him a question. Oh, yo, we're getting married. Okay, do you know? Do you know these very important things? Yeah, yeah, of course I know them. Yeah, but she didn't realize that that everything depended on that. She never realized what Rachel had done for her. She never realized that that it's only because of Rachel that she was able to marry. Yaakov, she doesn't realize 
that Rachel saved her from embarrassment because she didn't know. Rachel never told her that this was this was a secret code or anything. So now we can understand a little bit better, at least, Leah's reaction later on. It's not, you know, she doesn't even know how much Rachel did for her. She doesn't realize that. So then she's, you know, she gets annoyed when Rachel asks for the Dudaim. You took my husband. Now you're going to take, you know, she doesn't, to, in, in, in Rulea's mind, you know, sorry, Rachel, tough luck, but you're the younger sister, right? You tried to marry Yaakov. Dad said it doesn't work that way here. He married, he told, he said, I'm getting married first. And then you came along and, 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 and decided to, to marry him also. But, you know, th that's it. She doesn't know that, 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 that Rachel has done anything for her. So now Rachel wants her to die. She's upset. You know, it's enough that you, that you, you know, you, you became my husband's second wife. It's enough that you, that you decided to, you know, that you want to try to take my husband, but you're also trying to take my things, my dudaim, my flowers. So now we can understand a little bit better how, how um, Leah reacted. But what, what's, what's, you know, what's most important really is to recognize, according to this, the amazing act that Rachel performed over here. Because we talk about acts of kindness and different degrees of kindness. And this, to me, seems to be the highest level of kindness. The highest level of kindness is when a person does a kindness without the recipient even realizing it. And it's, it's the highest level of kindness in my mind from both the perspective of the person doing it and from the perspective of the person receiving. Meaning, first of all, if I do an act of kindness for someone, but they know about it, which is great, but they're going to feel indebted to me as a result. So, so what's a higher act of kindness? When I do something for someone and they feel indebted to me, or when I do something for someone and they don't feel indebted to me? So it's even, it's even greater if they don't feel indebted to me. Now, if, if they don't feel indebted to me because they have no, uh, no gratitude, that's, you know, that's a different story maybe. But if, if they don't feel indebted to me because they, it's unnecessary, then, uh, or they don't even, you know, they, they don't know that I took a kindness for them. So I've done such a, that raises the level of the kindness that I've done because I've, I, you know, so let's say we, we would rate the kindness to 10, but now they feel indebted. So it gets like minus two back, right? But if it, it's a 10, it remains a 10 because there's no, there's nothing that they think they owe me back. That's an even higher level. Um, I once read that, I think it was Rabbi Yeruchim Levav, it's one of the great pre-war um, rabbis who, who said that, you know, it's, it's natural. A person should feel indebted when somebody does the kindness for them. We should feel that way. And, and therefore, if somebody's invited to someone else's house, it's common that you want to bring something, right? So, so he said, I believe this was him, that uh, it's actually proper, and I've debated this with my wife, you know, what's, what's proper, but uh, it's, it's proper for the host to accept a gift. Why? Why should we accept the gift somebody offers? Why not just turn it down? No, no, it's fine, right? So in a certain sense, it's a higher kindness to accept the gift. Because if you don't accept a gift, so then the person continues to feel indebted. They know that they, that they, they owe you something. They have to invite you back or whatever it might be. 
But if you accept something, so that then they they paid you back. They feel in their minds that they paid you back. They don't feel indebted anymore by 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 being able to bring something to contribute in some way. So so he says actually it could be a higher kindness to accept a, the gift offered than to turn it down. Okay, we could debate that maybe, but uh, that's that was his perspective. But that's the idea. So in terms of the perspective from the side of the recipient, it's a higher level of kindness because they. It, they don't feel indebted. So I've done them a greater kindness. I've left them not feeling indebted even. It's also a higher level of kindness from the perspective of the doer, the, the person doing the kindness, because it means I'm doing it without expectation of any reward myself. So if, I, if I'm doing it without the person knowing, then it's, it's 100%. It's what we call chesed shel emes. It's, a, it's kindness of truth. Which, you know, one example of kindness of truth is, is, is giving is if you do kindness to someone who's dead. If you take care of a dead body, somebody works in the Chavra Kadisha. So they're not, uh, you're not getting anything back from the person for that, for taking care of their body after, they, after they've passed, right? So that, that we refer to as Chesed Shel Emes. It's true Chesed. It's true meaning it's, it's kindness with no intention of getting anything back. The same is true if you do something for somebody and they never realize that you did it for them. So that's the, that's a very high level of kindness. And that's what Rachel perhaps was engaging in here when she, when she helped Leah without Leah even realizing it. And even Leah then lashes out at her and says, you know, is it enough that you took my husband? You also want to take my dudaim? Still, Rachel is silent. And what a test that is, right? To, it's one thing to do it once, but you know, to, to have it challenged, that's the moment where you say, really? Do you know what I did for you? She doesn't say that, right? She holds herself back. And that's, 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 that's tremendous. And we've said before, you know, especially with Avraham, that the forefathers, they, they learned, Avraham learned kindness through emulating God. And, and in this, this point also, when we do acts of kindness without others knowing, we are really emulating God. This is something that God does for us all the time. This is what, now, how do I know? Don't really know because I don't know about it. But this is what's taught in Tehillim and Psalms. So it says, if you look at source number eight, it says, to the one who performs great wonders alone, for his kindness is eternal. In Hebrew, the one who performs wonders alone, for his, his kindness is eternal. So the Midrash interprets this verse in many commentaries as well. Like it's not saying that God performs it by himself, you know, without any help. He performs wonders without, you know, miracles without help. What it means that he performs great wonders alone, it means he performs them without anybody knowing about them. We have no idea of all the good and all the miracles that God performs for us on a daily basis. We have no idea that God, God acts, performs acts of kindness without us realizing. And this may be how we can understand a very difficult passage, chapter in Psalms. I think it's actually the shortest one. It's just two verses, chapter 117. We're going to read the whole chapter right now. These two verses, we say, the Hebrew is, we say this as part of the Hallel prayer. So the Hebrew is, Hallelu es Hashem kol goyim. In English, praise the Lord, all you nations, extol him, all you peoples. 
All the nations praise God. Why? Verse 2. In the Hebrew, it's ki gavar aleinu chasta. For great is his steadfast love toward us, or really his kindness, chasto, his kindness. So this is not the best translation here. I would say his chesed, his kindness for us is, he, for he does kindness for us. So, so let's try that again. We say in the Tehillim, all the nations should praise God. And uh, hallelujah, they should praise and another and praise and extol him. Why? Because he has done kindness for us. One second, right? If it, we should praise God for because he, he does kindness for us. They should praise God because he does kindness for them. But that's not what it says. It says they should praise God because he does kindness for us. The nation should praise God because he does kindness for us. What does that mean? It's a long approach. I believe this is attributed to the famous convert, Avraham the convert, the student of the Vilna Gaon. I believe that he, he's the one who, who is attributed, they attribute this, this, this explanation to. That he said, he explained that the nations praise God for the kindness that he does for us, because sometimes only the nations realize all the kindness that God does for us. What do we mean? So, you know, because... Amongst the nations are people, there's always people plotting our demise. Like we say at the Pesach Seder, right? And every generation, they rise us up against us and God saves us from their hand. Now, we don't always see that, right? They, sometimes their plot is foiled without us even knowing about it. They know about it. They try something and God foils their plan. But we never even realize. We never find out about it. We don't even know. So that's why they, they should praise God for all the kindness he does for us because re they realize how powerful and mighty and how much kindness God does for us when they try, you know, when they plot and, and plan against us and God foils their plans. We don't know about it, but they know about it. So again, that's, that's the, another example of, uh, of this idea. All the kindness God does for us without us even realizing it, perhaps when Rachel does the same, she is trying to emulate that attribute of God and, uh, and us as well, you know, God willing, we should also try to emulate that, to, to perform acts of kindness, not only, not for the hope of getting rewarded for it, um, but rather in the highest form, when the recipient doesn't even know about it, you know, if we have the opportunity, obviously, if you don't have the opportunity, you still do the kindness, you know, even if they're going to know about it. But if there's a, if we have the opportunity to perform an act of kindness without a recipient even realizing that's a very high form of, of kindness. And uh, it's, it's a kindness performed without any, any expectation of, of anything in return. And, uh, and when we do so, we're emulating God and perhaps emulating the conduct of our matriarch, Rachel, um, our matriarch, Rachel. Okay, we will pause there. Let me wish you all a happy Hanukkah and happy Thanksgiving. For, and uh, <clears throat> and God willing, I think we're on next Wednesday unless other people are busy. We'll try it. Well, I'll have to find a way to tie it into Hanukkah. That's, uh, but uh, if you're here, I'll be here. You guys are here or you're raising your hand to say something. You're here. Okay. I have a question. No, no, yeah. I do have a question. 
for the past uh, uh, few weeks, we've been studying, I mean, discussing a lot about the trickery that has been going on um, from Esau to his father, from uh, Rebecca to her husband, Jacob to his dad, all those trickery. And today it just came to my mind as we were talking so much about Rachel and uh, to be husband. Can we also see the trickery that was being displayed between, I mean, there was something that she agreed on with her, with Jacob, and then gave the, the you know, the secret to her sister. Can this be also seen as a trickery to, I, I mean, I, I've never heard it, but I right. just want to. So that's an excellent question. I think it's looked viewed more, uh, the, the Midrash actually says it with regards to Leah, that Yaakov, he wakes up in the morning, you know, he sees that it's Leah and he says, are you, what do you do to me? You know, how dare you? How can you trick me like this? So Leah says, well, you tricked Esau to get the blessings, right? I'm just doing what you did. You know, you, you took the first, you took the place of your brother. I'm taking the place of my sister. I'm just doing what you did. So, so yeah, I don't know about so much. I mean, Rachel, I guess, was involved, but maybe I think, you know, that was a little bit different, but yeah, this is another switcheroo, right? It's another trick. It's, a, it's, a, it's amazing that, you know, everybody's, everybody's switching. So, so yeah, it's, you, a, it's a very important point. Well, I hope that we'll talk about it a little bit when we, Hopefully we'll talk about Yaakov. I, I think I still have to like figure it all out, but uh, Yaakov and his attribute of truth, and yet he's involved in all these switches and tricks and, and yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to untangle, but we'll try. Thank you, Robert. Thank you. Sure.